Good evening. I'm storyteller Otis Gyre, and I ain't your grandfather. From where I'm from, we don't do bedtime stories. And if that's what you were expecting, you're in the wrong place. If it's terrifying tales you're after, well then, I've got just the thing. Get comfortable, settle in, turn off the lights, if you dare. Your night is about to get a whole lot darker. <laughs> Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> <laughs> Good evening. You're listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark. Welcome, dear listeners, to Season 11, Episode 13. I'm your host, Otis Jarry, and in this episode, I'll be performing four tales to terrify you, courtesy of author Dale Thompson. Tonight, you'll hear tales of ancient rituals, close calls, endless afterlives, monstrous management. You're listening to the standard edition of tonight's program, which contains the first two spine-tingling stories. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy an extended version of this and other episodes with twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today. Thank you for your support. Now, it's time to take a walk together down the moonlit trail. So, lock your doors, turn your lights down low, and settle in. The show is about to begin. <laughs> Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs, or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now... All you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Congratulations. You've got a new home. That's what I'd be saying if you just bought a new home and I was a realtor. And if I was a master of stating the obvious to a home buyer. But whatever place you call home, at least you can go to sleep tonight 
comforted by the fact that nothing is out there waiting for you, waiting for you to just fall asleep quietly and stop moving around just so much. Not so much luck for the family in our first offering. Their wonderful new home has some quirks, and it may take more than some simple household tricks to keep it from getting the better of them. Without further ado, I present to you, If Only Animals Could Talk. When we moved into the house, we called it our home. We were clueless as to what forces were living with us. It became apparent rather quickly we were not alone. All of the events I'm sharing, I do with reluctance. I'm not interested in making matters worse. After much contemplation, I've decided it's necessary. I make a record of events occurring within the house. We're unable to call this house our home longer. Unequivocally, this house belongs to someone else, and they have convinced us clearly they want it back. The unknown. Are we able to understand the strongest emotion? Fear? Not long after taking up residence, we realized, through a series of unforgettable events, we'd evoked something not of this world. Metaphorically, a fire had been kindled and allowed to burn. This is not a ghost tale. I'm going to share with you a haunting. The patterned brick house from the Blymere estate was a Victorian era, beautifully designed. Three-story house with character and personality. Its high-pitched roofs, ornate gable trim and bay windows were only part of the appeal. It even had two cylindrical octagon turrets and a roof tower. My wife Cheryl was delighted with the wraparound porch and the number of stained glass pieces. Our two children, Adrian and Isabella, fell in love with the dormer windows, which, from their vantage point, could see the entire property. Because the house boasted a fireplace in practically every room, I could already feel the coziness we'd feel once winter came and we had the fires burning. Strange and unexplicable things began to occur two weeks into our move. Suspicious sounds that could be heard in unoccupied rooms. I would stop whatever I was doing at that moment and investigate these noises. We didn't know at the time, but whatever was generating those noises was just warming up. Instinctively, I wanted to protect my family. But we agreed if a ghost existed in the house seeking attention, it must be a friendly one, because at this time we only heard scrapes, footsteps, inaudibly quiet whispers, and the occasional door slam. My wife Cheryl was a skeptic from the very beginning, and would explain away these remarkable phenomena by saying, there's a perfectly good explanation as to why this happened. Yet her explanations of these happenings were only conjecture without solid proof. It seemed the majority of these recurring events were experienced by Isabella. I did some reading on such disturbances to learn some people have more energy than others. It's as if they radiate a brighter spiritual aura. They tend to draw the unexplained to themselves. Not all things haunted manifest. Sometimes the peculiar instances 
are caused by certain stimulation, or the one person exuding such an unseen expression could generate a beacon to the unseen world. The explanation made sense. I'm unable to explain the verbosity, any pseudo-scientific elements that would suggest these were natural occurrences. Some rooms notoriously appeared to have more activity than others. Isabella's bedroom was the hot spot. Against her better judgment, as my wife put it, I set up cameras in Isabella's room, hoping to produce evidence of a ghost or apparition to convince my wife to get on board with our probe of the mysterious foreboding. I had an infallible resolve to get answers in any fashion I desired, regardless of how inexplicable it may be. A month after moving in and one week into my recording of Isabella's room, we all heard a commotion upstairs. We'd finished dinner and were about to clear the table, but instead we abandoned the chores and made our way to the staircase. Practically vaulting upstairs, we found ourselves in Isabella's room, and to our shock and dismay, the entire room was in disarray. It looked like an FBI crime scene photo where a robbery had occurred. Thank God all of our family was accounted for, because in a mess such as this one, uh, well, it wouldn't be surprised to find a corpse. Gratefully, no one had been murdered except by two cameras, which were both completely destroyed. I was able to salvage the SD cards and fed the information into my Mac computer. We sat around the screen as a family and took a look at what had happened inside Isabella's room. At first, all looked calm and normal. Nothing was moving at all. Within seconds, the closet door swung open, and something transparent yet outlined in a silver lamination bolted from the closet space and into her room. The shape was badger-like. It was low to the ground, but leaped high onto the bed. It spun madly in circles, ripping the sheets from the bed and shredding them to pieces. Cupboard and shelves were toppled and torn up, with drawers yanked out, all the contents shredded and strewn around the room. From there, in lightning speed, it ran around, clawing the walls of the room, leaving deep scratches. Once the race around the walls ended, it rammed each camera with its head and then proceeded to bounce and jump crazily up and down on each one. It didn't exit the closet from where it came. Instead, it lunged forward at the wall and was gone. It was immediately after this, Cheryl said, We have a problem. I agreed, but had no immediate solutions. So far, no one had been hurt by these inscrutable occurrences, but then this last manifestation showed clearly that the entity, or entities, could inflict harm if provoked. The following day, I phoned the realtor and explained we had a real problem at the house and needed for him to come and see us right away. Absurdly, we were not uptight about this uncanny situation. Matter of fact, instead of being afraid, we wanted to get to the root cause and shut it down. The realtor arrived the following day to discuss our complaint. At first, he was completely dismissive and disinclined to discuss such matters as paranormal activities. Uh, we soon changed his mind when we revealed the video footage we'd recovered from the smashed cameras. This is when he became quite somber 
and requested a glass of water. Once he gathered himself and settled his nerves, he said he had some explaining to do. I was honest with you about the house, but I should have been forthcoming about the history behind it. Please, if you'll allow me, there are some matters you need to know since you made contact. The house has been in disarray, but saved from ruin and disfavor. It's gone through many vicissitudes. Salesman swallowed hard as beads of sweat formed on his brow. As he spoke of the history and expatiated on the mysteries unsolved, he'd wipe his brow several times. He explained, in the 17th and 18th centuries, there were people of Dutch origin who immigrated to the United States from Germany and Switzerland. They settled in south-central Pennsylvania. They came to practice their religious freedoms, which William Penn, a nobleman at the time, offered them. They brought with them faith healing and folk magic. The guidebook to this religion, called Powwow, was written by John George Homan and was called Long Lost Friend. It dealt with arts and remedies, and man and animals. The book outlined techniques, practices, charms, and cures, sometimes talisman for blessings. These practices were done in the name of God and Jesus Christ, but leaned heavily upon superstition and magic. These would be used to heal burns and stop bleedings or physical illnesses. These practices were not limited to man, but at the time were also practiced on livestock or pets as well. The pow-pow sounds like witchcraft. However, the enemy of pow-pow was witchcraft itself, and protective charms were created to protect people from spells and incantations which might result in a curse. Those who lived in this cultural environment were soon dismissed by Christianity, and most succumbed to more modern forms of worship abandoning this Dutch powwow practice. Yet a small, devout minority remained, some of whom lived right here in this house. In their devotions, these practitioners, who believed they were mediators between God and man, often produced charms through recital of religious papers, making extensive use of religious symbols and prayers to ward off evil. As I see it, you've reawakened something in this house, that have been charmed away by someone who understood these old practices. I believe because this entity has shown itself to you, you desperately need protection. The only protection I can give you is a copy of Holman's book. The real estate agent dug into his leather satchel and brought out a copy of Long Lost Friend. He handed it to me. I opened the book to the preface and read what was written. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver thee, and thou shalt glorify me. Psalm 50, 15. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today.
Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. The real estate agent added one more instruction before he quickly gathered his briefcase and left. If any man who knowingly neglects using this book in saving the eye or the leg or any other limb of his fellow man, he's guilty of the loss of such limb and thus commits sin by which he may forfeit to himself all hope of salvation. Listen, folks. Keep the book. Use it. You've awakened something that may not want you to stay here. Feel free to leave at any time, but I'm not obligated to return any monies paid for the house. I will warn you, this is nothing to take lightly. Obviously, the protective charm has either expired or you inadvertently broke it which means whatever lurks in the recesses of these walls is no longer contained. Needless to say, the four of us were left stunned by these revelations. I secured the book, Long Lost Friend, in my desk and convened with my family in order to strategize. The first question I posed was, is everyone comfortable staying in the house? The second question was somewhat the same. Does anyone want to leave? I thought if any one of us wanted out, I'd pack everyone up and roll on down the road. I wasn't surprised when we all agreed to stay, as we'd never been ones to give up easily on anything. We needed a good brainstorming session, so we went to the backyard under the gazebo, and there we talked about our concerns and all of the what-ifs. We all loved the house, other than the poltergeist, it was home. I committed myself to more research. The internet provided a lot of information concerning families and individuals who'd experienced similar hauntings. During the next couple of weeks, I fell headlong into the mysteries of what I found to be the Dutch practice of brouchere, the vernacular healing system that they practiced centuries ago. The deeper I delved, the more witchy the religion sounded. I found the materials to be eerie at best. Powwowers treated a wide variety of diseases as divergent as arthritis, asthma, bleeding, bone afflictions, cataracts, cysts, gallstones, insomnia, sinus issues, and even warts. I was no expert, but I determined that some magic was good, but some sacraments of evil on the track of evolution were committed to darkness. These practices with animal bones were very disturbing. 
They believed animal bones were imbued with pure and natural energy, attuned to the natural flow of the cosmos. What we had undergone could unnerve the most solid soul, yet my family seemed to thrive disproportionately on the macabre. Because of their incredulity, they didn't adhere to psychological convalescence. My son, who was uncannily mature at times, did make mention I was becoming quite loquacious and questioned me almost accusatorily of incessantly leering at him. I'm not sure what you mean, Adrian. I think we all might be overacting. Maybe much ado about nothing. I tried to assure him I was not acting out of character, but I was lying to him and to myself. I convinced myself our continuity could not be broken by ancient spells or cryptic charms, mainly because I thought our moral consciousness would sustain us. At first, we didn't hold much credence to the ways of the Elder World, but wholeheartedly sought a solution. The sooner this fright had panned out, uh, and we had solid answers, the sooner we could retire to a restful rustication. We were not a family of quivering neurotics with unwholesome attitudes, filled to the brim with venom. In our minds, these spooky phantoms could take their obscene interferences elsewhere. Over the course of the following week, there were other strange, inexplicable instances where we were shocked and mystified. It was as if some primordial threat had attached itself to us and would not let go. The sense of latent mystery was ever-present. On the other hand, I was moved by a sense of ecstasy and emotion. The more I studied this religious practice, the more I felt like a part of it. It was difficult to explain. It was as if I was being released from exile and catapulted into imputations of phantasmagoria. I was impelled by the notion of absolute freedom. So deeply was I embedded in the absurd that I found myself contemplated morbid and forbidden phenomena insidiously contrived in my head. Dialects of strange tongues ministered to my soul, and I withdrew from family, work, and basic normal life. I couldn't extinguish the flame scorching my mind. Searing heat and despair began to change my rationale. Cognitively, I wanted to kill. Kill them all. Butcher them like livestock. I could pretend make believe I was in my right mind, I was sane, but it was the insanity speaking. The awful atrocities I imagined, the reoccurring debaucheries, were overwhelming. My demons were embedded and they worked quickly so no one would notice. I was a stone effigy to my own grave. I was deserting my family in a peculiar sense of oppression, so articulated that no one could decipher my motivations. I became paranoid. My expressions were suspect because my furtive, timorous jittering in my repositories of equivocal secrets, the last remaining vestiges of my inflamed imagination lingered. I recognized these dubious arts. This cryptic religion was consuming my identity. It was during one of many unexplained episodes, of which I'm ashamed, a dull, hopeless hue slightly blurred my eyes. 
I found myself in an unrecognizable part of the house. I have no memory of how I achieved this discovery. There I was in this dimly lit catacomb of the unknown. A puritic eruption of inflammation assiduously ate away at my arms and neck. I ferociously scratched at the itching until my arms were bleeding. I found no relief. It was as if I was being eaten alive by microscopic mites. I turned the corner and stopped in my tracks, for the sight I saw was not of this world. It was a beast, hideous, without true anatomical delineating features. I could only try to describe what I saw. An animal, or may I say, an anomaly, with a vast colloid face that shined bright red. Its tumoral neck was thick and powerful, with long strands of light-colored hair protruding from the tumors. This beast had a lizard-type tail with ridiculous oozing cysts, a papular skin that was spotted with lesions, covered with a sheen as if it had overproducing eccrine glands. It had halted my advance, and I was faced with the beast so heinous. My description is only a partial idea of what I saw. It groaned agitatedly, low moans of the grinding of intrathoracic spasms. I believed I could outrun the beast, for it moved decrepitly slowly, as though it were racked with sarcoid arthritic pain. It stood immutable like a guard at the gates of hell. Pervasive fear summoned me. In alarming fascination, the presence of my consciousness and will attempted to brush away the cobwebs for clarity. However, the stories of blood and secret languages exclusive of men chimed in my head with suppressed fear and vague suggestions. I turned in a different direction and stumbled quickly away. I didn't know where I was running to, but I understood the danger. Prudence was imperative. I managed to find access to the house, but from where I emerged I cannot recall. I believe I snapped out of the asphyxiation in my walk-in bedroom closet. I was practically anesthetized. I will not easily forget the monstrous creep which cooled the blood in my veins. I thought about sending the family away for their own safety. It clouded my mind. I didn't know what I may be capable of. I struggled with an intolerable uncertainty and had sunk into the depths of depravity no man should discover of himself. I bridled every thought so as not to dwell on the savagery and viciousness of my thinking. I knew I must gain control, because unleashed, I wasn't sure if I'd become a wild beast, without conscience, barbaric, acting instinctually. An animal knows nothing of immortality, decadence, callousness, or criminality. I knew I could not be allowed to turn. An evolutionary atavism was causing a re-emergence of my origin, regressing ancestrally to a primitive human condition. Where was my firm determination to stay focused? I needed avid concentration. Either way, my immediate decision would be momentous. I had lost my ability for strong erudition, 
and other constant stirrings dismantle the natural, replacing them with morbid longing. In this unbearable, permeating challenge, I literally struggled against murdering my family. They had no clue what was brewing inside my head. I read more and more about charms, prayers, wishes, incantations, all the while acting like the doting father and loving husband. I was immersed in this atavistic superstition to my own detriment. I was beginning to not recognize myself and believed it to be an overactive imagination. But the acts of violence in my head caused me to feel as though I no longer belonged. I was trespassing in my own home. I was no more than a lonely tourist, powerless. Living in my skin caused me relentlessness and nervous speculation. At night, I'd wander the house. I returned to the hidden catacombs, which I determined were beneath my house. In this serpentine world, I was being compelled towards something supernatural. Strange associations dragged me along, pushing back my reasonings. I found bunches of what I assumed were horse hair and rotted calf bindings. The entire place held an unholy rapport, an unutterable horror. There the dreaded animal stood again as if beckoning to me. A cold prickle pinched the nape of my neck, and as if lava was flowing from my cranium, a melting heat cascaded down my spine in a slow burn. I became fatigued, frightened, unsure. I groped in a panic for the wall to steady myself, for my knees were trying to collapse on me. I slid down the wall, unbalanced, putting distance between the unexplained thing luring me and myself. I remember stumbling, falling, and landing hard. I'd crashed down on a malodorous pile of something, loose of various shapes and sizes. I touched something hairy, no doubt a fresh rotting carcass. I winced, drew back in a defensive posture while on my knees. Good Lord, I thought. My unknown antagonist had driven me into a lofty, echoing corridor of moldering bones and septic decay. Again, I retched violently back, scrambling like a whipped pup, but unstable still, and clearly aware of my dire situation. I was faced with a volition that oppressed me. Do I sacrifice myself to the animal I'm becoming? Or can I defeat it and return to who I was before all of this was thrust upon my family? Once again, I freed myself from this nightmare and eventually came to. I was in a fetal position in the bedroom closet. My wife was pushing on my shoulders, attempting to rouse me. She walked me to the bed where I sat and gathered myself. I was all out of sorts, but meditative. I finally broke down as she comforted me and wept for a good ten minutes. Cheryl was confused, unable to understand the great burden I'd been forced to bear. I described to her the horrors I'd experienced in the unknown part of the house and how this devilish entity had warped my thinking. I mentioned the pile of bones, carcasses, fangs, feathers, claws and shells I'd fallen onto. At first, she challenged my explanation as a very bad dream, but I'd disputed that and confessed my more sinister thoughts of harming her and the kids. 
Oh, that's crazy talk, Cheryl said defiantly and standing directly in front of me now. Cheryl, listen to me, I pleaded. I would never hurt you or the kids. I've been receiving, telepathically or some other way, I don't know, a sort of ancestral communication. The thoughts come like messages, speaking of sacred spaces, and how they want to guide me further toward a spirit world. Speaking to my wife openly about what I had been experiencing was good therapy for my psyche, and protracting from this serious foul mental engagement I'd been entangled in, I believed I was more like myself. I no longer had the sensation of being smuggled away from my family by unseen forces. As convoluted as it sounded, Cheryl was determined to find out the truth behind my disassociation and the disorder of mind that I'd been experiencing. My son and daughter joined us for a family meeting, and with all of us coming together again, my mind was slowly being restored. The thoughts of murder were dismissed. Whatever diabolical, transparent force had temporarily twisted my reason had subsided. Eschewing the voices in my head was only a matter of influence and time. I made my resolve nothing would feast on me again. A couple of weeks later, everything seemed to be back to normal. The weekend had come and we had planned a family barbecue. Cheryl and Isabella were in the kitchen prepping the food, and Adrian was hanging a poster of his favorite baseball player on his wall, which he'd ordered online. I heard Adrian in distress. His voice cracked, wavered with a tincture of dread and deliberately expressed panic. I heard a shocking commotion. I was unable to understand what he yelled out, but reacted instantly and catapulted in frantic speed up the steps, not remembering touching a single step to his bedroom. I failed to immediately ascertain the enormity of what I was seeing. As I entered the room, Adrian was unostentatiously rambling while holding the poster in his hand. It seemed like he'd accidentally knocked a hole in the wall, and the hole grew in size until it revealed a wall of what appeared to be exposed animal parts, limbs, taxidermized, and some raw bones as well. Part of the wall remained, and the wallpaper had been torn, revealing words. I carefully approached the wall, and in order to get a better look, I pulled back the wallpaper. When we take our last breath, the drums beat the steps. No secret is ever really kept. When you march to the rhythm of death, when the howls of the dead praise thee, even gangrenous corpses believe. Ever after. Is that what it was before? Wandering the tombs of the nevermore. I thought, what kind of infernal sorcery is this? Some singular and terrible event was happening. This forbidden lore was not finished with us. In this nebulous pageantry, the glimming bones were crying out to us. But what were they saying? The paradox and arcana were intertwined like an alien force in our home. The presence had not been abated. The heap of bones was easy to pull away from the wall. One at a time, it revealed a darkened passage. By this time, Cheryl and Isabella had arrived. They were not impressed with what they saw. I shined a light into the darkened passage, 
and saw yellow stains of heated unpleasantries, which produced a mephitic vapor. I could not begin to imagine what this event meant. The debate on whether this passage should be explored or not was a 50-50 split. Adrian, who had found a unique, naturally formed spiral cane in the wall and was now fumbling with it, and I wanted to enter it, while Cheryl and Isabella were against it. I can't blame them. Fear is fear, however, it is described. This gave the occasion to be afraid. Fear causes apprehension and mistrust. It is virulently infectious. If suddenly I'm afraid, it isn't long before others with me will become afraid. If I unexpectedly begin to run, you can bet others will run too, without knowing the initial cause. An initial vibration like hot and cold air was making me shiver. I had an acute bout of anxiety come over me, like a suffocation. I lost sight of my family. I seemed to be between worlds, disconnected, and darkness was closing in. I had no recollection of stepping into the passage, but I couldn't say I had not either. I called up my son's name, my daughter's name, and lastly my wife, but dead silence. I couldn't controvert or deny what had happened. Was this an episode of psychosis? Some sort of mental aberration? I was environed, touched by thoughts, My mind whirled, my will stiffened, and my emotions began to unthread. I found myself doing a repeat of earlier times, groping my way down a passage into the grimy facade of the unknown. Everything was oblique. Nothing supported my disputed, vacant mind. I believed I had fallen, but oddly enough, I didn't care. The ethereal was now before me and behind me. I was encircled. I stumbled upon another writing. I shined my flashlight and read what was written. Saw the bones carve the figurines, calm the nerves, the ears that ring, gather the twisted faces. They need to see the abyss. None of you know better than I. We all get one last wish. I have seen the dark, emblazoned pitch of insanity. I've cradled in its corners the horror inside of me. I know its name. The writing seemed unfinished and convinced me that whoever scribed this on the passage wall was interrupted. I would have gone back the way I came, but I didn't know from where I came. In this place, I found nothing grand. All of it, as if a stagnant pall of sadness, was draped darkly over it. Disordered, disquieted, down and damnable to Sathane. I began to think this was for the best. If I were here, my family was safe from any irrational abomination I might do. I was no longer reliable, stalwart. I was despicable me, doomed to exist outside of my family, so I could not infect them with my condition or bring harm to them. Inexplicably, I swore I heard someone call out, It was faint, but maybe it was being rescued. I recognized the voice calling. It was Adrian calling out, Dad! We found another way relatively quickly, and he said he thought he knew the way out. He had no memory, either of how he came into the passage, but he still held the spiral cane he had found from the wall of bones in his bedroom. 
I followed them until we reached more writing on the wall, but this time, the writing had been framed with what appeared to be human bones. It read, Spill the blood of mortals, cast their bones aside. Like fires eternal, where the worm never dies. Sacrifice the beast, cut the flesh from his frame. Brand us today criminals, tuck the raw pieces away. Read the inscriptions in the walls, gather among strange beliefs, strangled by the throat till dead, in blessed, unhallow infinity. It was signed John Blymeyer. It made little to no sense to either of us, so we carried on exploring with particular assiduity when we heard the voices of Cheryl and Isabella. Oh, dear Lord, don't let them be lost in this infernal maze, I thought. To my delight, my wife and daughter met us, but I was also fearful for them. They were in possession of a book. We have to show you this, my wife said, opening up the pages and putting it under the light. The cane Adrian found is a powerful tool called a throw stick. According to this book, the Holy Blessing and the Spiritual Shield Vigil, combining a diverse assortment of verbal benedictions, prayers, gestures, and the use of everyday objects, as well as celestial and calendar observances. The rituals in this book are used not only for healing of the body, but also for protection from physical and spiritual harm. Therefore, assistance in times of need, my wife said. Look at this. Cheryl pointed at some text. The proper placement of a broom by the front door will protect from malicious people and spirits. There's a prayer in the back of the book as well, Isabella pointed out. I took the book and, out of instinct, had everyone form a circle, one hand touching one another and the other hand on the throw stick. I held the book the best I could while performing this made-up ritual. I read from the pages of the book, Today we rise and tend to the day which we have received. In thy name, Father, Son, Holy Ghost, protect our body and soul, our flesh and our life. We pray now for your divine protection in the hour of death. The cane turned red hot, and we let it go. It landed between us at our feet, the fire roaring perpendicularly, almost singeing our hair. It blinded us momentarily, and we had no idea what was happening until we found ourselves confounded back in Adrian's bedroom unharmed. The wall was perfectly sealed back, as if it had never collapsed. The cane rested in the corner without any burn residue. Is everyone all right? I asked, looking the family over for any injuries. Everyone was intact. Without hesitation, we took a unanimous vote. In agreement, we opted to pack up our belongings, and thus we sold the house shortly after. I'm still not sure what any of it meant, if any reason even did exist. If animals could talk. You can live out your MasterChef dreams. When you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. 
You can do this when you Angie that. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I hope you enjoyed If Only Animals Could Talk by Dale Thompson, as performed by yours truly. If you enjoyed that tale and would love to read more from tonight's very talented feature author, you can help support them by visiting simplyscarypodcast.com slash Thompson. That's simplyscarypodcast.com slash T-H-O-M-P-S-O-N. Other than the stories you're hearing tonight, you can find out more about him at his official YouTube channel, where he lets his music do the talking. If you do decide to stop by the profile, please... Leave him a kind word and let him know you heard about him here on this show and that me, Otis Chiry, sent you. It would mean a lot to me. Thanks again for your support of this program and of tonight's featured author. A friendly reminder to you in the audience that one should study ancient rituals at their own risk and continue to stay in haunted places at their own risk as well. But that should go without saying. But even with adequate warning, some folks will just do what they do without a care in the world. Take our next story, in which, despite the warnings of the friendly townsfolk and wandering day worker, decides to brave the trek out of town and learns that warnings are given for a reason. Without further ado, I present to you Huggin' Molly. Abraham concluded his business in Abbeville. He'd slept extemporaneously since he had arrived, but he was anxious to see home. Home was several miles out of town, but it would be an easy walk. Abraham walked everywhere. Transportation for him had been a horse and buggy, but his horse had become sick with the equine influenza. Losing his mare because he did not have the money to treat the illness and was unable to keep the fever at bay, he did the only humane thing a man could do. So he was forced to be a methodical pedestrian and refused to settle for a sedentary life. Abraham was a farm worker, not owning a farm of his own. He sought work wherever he could. He'd never traveled this far east. He was from Troy, but now lived between Troy and Abbeville, having worked as far west as Northport. Abbeville was a quaint little town where everyone knew one another and had no secrets to keep. They toiled the ground, planted and harvested crops, raised cattle, 
mended fences and cut trees for firewood from the forest. These were simple folks, just good country people. One fact which was very peculiar, Abraham discovered, was that many of the town's residents were hard of hearing. The residents, abstentious, even devout in their beliefs, were easy to get along with. Abraham, who was not in the least a superstitious man, took most fables with a grain of salt. His suspicions were slightly raised when he realized indiscriminately that most everyone he spoke with had deafness, at least in one ear. He brushed it off. He didn't have time to dwell on such matters. He'd completed his work, and he may never be back this way again. The town folk of Abbeville had encouraged Abraham not to travel so late in the evening. They laid the claim that the road may be impassable once the sun set. It was unfrequented by the living at night for the fear of what was unknown. When Abraham inquired about why the road west would be impassable, he noticed the obvious eye contact of the few townfolk who were seeing him off. It was as if they held some sort of unspoken secret. Abram wondered what in the world would influence these good people in such a way as to make them so adamant he wait until morning to start for home. Eventually, one of the ladies with whom he'd worked the farm uh, spoke up. He figured the healing losses were because people were marrying within families and possibly had caused the common birth defect. She told a brief story about someone called Molly. Who's Molly? Abram asked, being less than fascinated with folklore and attributing their superstitions to rumors invented by their ancestors. The woman explained, unintentionally boisterously, Molly is not a person, but an it, a thing, not human. She sometimes waits for travelers making their way through the forest at night, and bad things happen. Abram was respectful, yet rushed off this morning, as some aggravated tall tale myth that made for a great campfire banter. But he was not a believer in paganism, witchcraft, mysticism, or any other hocus-pocus. He thanked them kindly for their warning of a possible threat, and promised he'd be vigilant on his journey back home. Without trepidation, Abram casually strolled down the street, not in a hurry and not in a slumber, but with assiduity. At a normal gait, he made good strides. Unfortunately for him, he had gotten a late start, and night had fallen. As he proceeded to put distance between him and Abbeville, the street turned into a road, and he found himself alone. With sparsely spaced street lamps, he thought he'd have another light to continue on his journey. Forgetting his light was a big mistake. Unintentional, of course, but he had not planned on being out after dark. He walked on level ground mostly. Bosky hills and forest ran along each side of the road. He tried to shake off the wet cold as the broom rose like a faint cloud. A creep came over him and his eyes darted from left to right, then back again. The feeling of being watched irritated him. Could it be someone followed him out of town? He had not much to steal, if someone might be in that frame of mind. It was impossible for him to be ostentatious in any way, shape, or form. And even in celebrated moments, he never preferred to be in the spotlight. 
All attention he ever received came unintentional and unwelcome. The story of Ichabod Crane and the Headless Horseman reared in his mind. He glanced over his shoulder and saw the faint lights of the distant town through the mist. The mist gently swirled as if in slow motion, almost like a faint exhale. Abram, a tall and lanky fellow, but not muscular at all, had always been clumsy. Though he appeared to be formidable in size, he was, in fact, impuissant. Too awkward for sports growing up, and his legs so long, regrettably, he had seldom ridden a bicycle, which, to his discredit, left him fairly weak for his proportions. He never had the advantage, except in academics, where he excelled. He had to think for numbers and math. He could decipher practically anything. And throughout his school years, his teachers were amazed at his computation abilities. Strolling through the pellucid, phantasmagoric night, he remained cautious, even considering turning back. As he'd always said, follow your gut instinct. But he dismissed his acute distress response and pressed on into the mysterious and uneric. Abram had a sense of unimaginable loneliness. If he'd been the last man standing, could not be more threatened than right now. The sempiternal night became ever more puissant, and Abram had this irreconcilable notion. Disappointingly, he was not cut out to be a wayfarer. He was honestly convinced that wanton danger pursued him. Silly as it may be, he heard only mournful sounds of the sylvan viridescent awakening in errant darkness. This excited speculation in his mind. Up ahead in the distance stood a figure directly in the middle of the road. Who could it be? They were too far away to make out if man, woman, or beast obstructed the way. His knees became weak during the arduous consideration as he paused and attempted to focus on the motionless figure. This necessitated his immediate action. As he espied the unknown person from his vantage point, it appeared in all probability this person had their hands on a contraption. He could testify from his position that it seemed to be something one might push. The figure broke the standoff and turned to the right, and in doing so, revealed with clarion sight a woman in a pram. She pushed a baby carriage. Abram could not begin to imagine, nor did he try to source, the meaning of this. Founded outside the bounds of reason, he thought. She doesn't belong here. Something's out of place. As if she were running late for an appointment, the woman hurriedly pushed the pram off the road and into the forest, completely disappearing. Unbelievable. Simply the strangest thing I believe I've ever seen. Abram spoke out loud to himself, leaving his bottom jaw dropped in a stunned position, greatly facilitated by the odious haunting. Just not real. That's my imagination. The fog, the absence of light, the shadows. Surely that has to be it. My mind's playing tricks on me. He hinted at a chuckle. Some sort of biological invasion caused by reading too many horror stories? Unaccountable noises resonated with lively echoes, brushing lightly upon his auditorial senses like mellifluous ministerings of spirits the furtive world in this torpid forest. Abram attempted to disenthrall himself from the sight, 
that he now swore he did not see, but the image of the woman with the baby carriage weighed on his mind, as stifling as the night which seemed to be clawing its way inside his soul. He picked up his step while doubting himself. Maybe I should have nixed leaving so late in the day. Frightened, he halted. He looked back and stored way in the back of his mind. He remembered the verse of the Bible concerning Sodom and Gomorrah, two ancient cities destroyed by God, who told Lot and his family in all expedients they could escape, but do not look back on the city. The story goes, according to the scriptures, Lot's wife looked back and instantly transformed into a pillar of salt. Upon allowing this to come to his mind, Abram immediately turned away from the faint lights of the now distant town and prayed in the hope that his fate would not be of biblical proportions. Abram shivered, freezing cold, yet he felt like he had a thermite coursing through his veins. He assumed the cold had afflicted him and he may soon be fevered. The sudden awareness stopped him in his tracks when precisely up ahead he saw another figure emerging from the forest. He thought, oh no, caught in the concerto of death. Not at all familiar with this landscape, he had no advantage. It was possible this stalker, whoever this stranger was, had either been following him or lying in wait. The dizzying notion sickened him even more. Abram experienced a momentary fit of madness in this perfidy. Believing he'd done this to himself, he knew all along it would have been to his advantage if he'd turned back. He'd not be faulted or said to be cowardly in turning back. It only made sense because daytime travel would have been easier to maneuver. His courage was forfeited when he heard Elico's lips deliberately threatening him acerbically in the tone of a woman. Witches! Abram panicked. He spun around in every direction in order to locate the source of the voice. It didn't seem to have come from the direction of the figure standing in the middle of the road ahead. The voice sounded much closer, almost directly in his ear. He could see no one else. In a not-so-rational he made a break into the forest. He didn't go deep into the woods in case he lost direction. He didn't want to be lost among this timber. Poking his head out from around a tree, he could see the road, and a dull moon created a silhouette around the figure he refused to approach. On this unpleasantly grim, nefarious night, he eyed the derisive menace while attempting to push his dread down below the sun and deal with his uncertain fate in a calm manner. As he contemplated, he eminently pressed down himself to ascertain if this woman had a weakness. Nonetheless, his outward emotions were masking a distressing entanglement of nerves, restricting their manifestation. Abram, ashamed to be the sort who could fall to pieces over spilled milk, endeavored to remain serene. If he gave in to this harrowing event, he had serious doubts it would be possible for him to recover. He had few other options to consider. Undoubtedly, she must have a weakness, he thought. But his presumptions produced no revelation. He realized his initial mistake. Despite his nocturnal preambulations, he should have never set out at such an hour. Something crashed through the treetops above. Abram heard thudding sounds hitting the detritus duff in every direction. The sky of terror convulsed and fell upon him. At first, he only heard the crashing sounds, 
which resembled the sound of baseball-sized hailstones. But then he saw the reality of it all. It was raining thrushes, multitudinously with heavy thumps and stout thwacks. En masse, dozens of blackbirds, dead as can be, plummeted with severe force. Appalled, Abram hugged the tree which he stood behind, with his arms raised over his head in an attempt to protect himself from a direct strike of this eruption of blight. Whole flocks in aggregated coordination were nosediving suicidally in every direction. This was when he noticed an unusual moisture on his hands from the tree. He could not see clearly, but it appeared the tree wept a liquid substance. It wasn't gum, not sticky nor viscid like resin. The secretion presented thinly. He seemed to denote a familiar odor. What could this exudate be? The bird bombing ceased as quickly as it began, leaving the forest floor littered with dead birds and broken tree limbs. Abram stepped back and looked for anywhere lighted where the moon's glow shone brightest. He moved into what little light he could find. The consequences of this were mortifying. His hands and forearms were smeared in red blood. The trees were bleeding, hemorrhaging, and he was standing in an inch of the coagulating stuff, which confirmed supernatural forces were now in play. All bravery vacated him in this indescribable gloom of defeatism. His outlook seemed darker than the weight of the celebrated grief that produced the lugubrious moroseness eating away at the marrow of his bones. He'd lost sight of the unequivocally imposing figure on the road. An unaffordable annoyance for an inveterate, faint-hearted man, so incredulous it posed a detriment to his psyche. Unable to assuage his mental anguish, in crippling fashion, he assumed all hope had been annulled in the vehement darkness. Disinclined to go forward, the road behind him remained completely fogged over, erasing the town's lights completely. With encumbered awkwardness, he managed his way from the covering of the forest back onto the pavement of the road. Fearing exposure and with apprehension, he had only one choice. Reluctantly, he must proceed. Where had the obscure figure gone? He worried himself with thoughts of solemn shadows turning dastardly, becoming spectral and cemetery ghouls of cadaver ball, and he imagined flesh-eating zombies. Not totally incapacitated and still aware of the nebulousness of his being, his goal was to shake off consternation and extract himself from this indelicate dilemma. He told himself positively that these calamities could be rationalized, and it would be his own transcendence that would rescue him from the amplified bleakness. Not one single blackbird had crashed upon the road. He did not know how this was possible, unless the birds all fell dead at once from the tree limbs. Intriguingly, it did not make sense. Trees, bleeding, human blood seemed implausible. A chilling boreal breeze blew in, which caused Abram to retrieve his jacket from his satchel. What troubled him more than anything else were the dreadful miles yet to go, and thus far, the journey had been met with oddities and the unexplained. What could be ahead? Invariably, he'd merely have to deal with it when it came whatever it was. He would not, 
could not be dissuaded. Without some prescience of warning, a woman's voice from the forest profoundly shouted out to him by name. Abram! Oh, Abram, my love! A chill raked up his spine like pins and needles. He broke out in a cold sweat. He began to run clumsily away from the direction of the voice, all the while trying to convince himself nothing was undecipherable. He conscientiously believed some evils simply take a little longer to master. The stringent, tortured female voice called out his name again in immemorial yearning. Abram, my love! Fighting off the dizzying bewitchment proved to be impossible. Every time the witch cried out his name, it shattered bits of his life into shards, piercing the resolve of his heart, turning inward, erasing his memories in a hypnotizing spellbound menagerie of universal grandiosity. Abram, as it were, labored, caught in some undefinable distorted gravitational pull. Two ends of a seesaw. Hysterically, he ran for his life, losing his balance because he took a second to look behind him. He stumbled and fell, then he tumbled, coming to a painfully bruised and scraped stop on his face. His bleeding was superficial, with no broken bones pure luck. To his induced shock, standing nearly on top of him, the figure he had seen earlier hung over him. The evil impression indelibly bore a resemblance to something conjured from the dead. A hideous giant woman, a hellish visage, taller than he, the epitome of the Grimalkin he'd read about in books, dressed in black with a large-brimmed hat, with leathered skin so coriaceous, flaking as if a dry leaf had been molded to a deeply wrinkled, obscene face, and it now stared down upon him. Her jet-black hair rippled with long tresses from beneath the hat, falling on her shoulders and cascading down her back and tumbling down her saggy breasts. She conveyed an unspoken menace bearing the distinction of impulse. Frightened to his core, Abram uncontrollably shook and trembled all over. He wanted to run again, but his limbs had lost all strength. His legs were leadened weights. His grief resumed its sway carelessly and duly, but he struggled, incapable of putting his motor skills to work. He spoke through quivering lips. Who are you? What do you want? He diverted his eyes, conserving himself so as not to provoke the witch, as this could result in actions less than amenable. He didn't want to disturb the climate at all, knowing inexorably the possibility and probability it could induce a caprice which he would never come back from. The mechanics of his reflexes were bogged in the mire of stagnant thought, confining him to reflect inwardly, and this reflection in his calculations was a sorry state. He had one obligation, self-preservation. Once again he shrank, pursued by the vivid, very vivid impressions of negligence on his part, rendering him defenseless. In a vulgar tone, the witch spoke, I am Molly. Abram recoiled, revulsed by her appearance. She had an accursed countenance, no desirable qualities, and he stalled in the possibility that if he begged for his life, she might show him mercy. He quickly saw there was no compassion, just the eyes of pure wickedness. He could not fathom a woman of the size, 
She stood enormously tall and incredibly robust. Her breath burned his eyes and smelled of decay and unfettered stench. Abram turned his head and made it to his knees, facing away from her. He prayed passionately for a modicum of relief. He crawled, ill-fated, in her grisly hands, and he had no doubt about his end. He believed death was imminent. He convinced himself, hopelessly, it would be painful, and in the wake of his uncertainty, whatever method Molly's puerile choice, it would be torturously long. He heard the scampering of small feet coming from behind Molly. Inordinately, she defined the word wide, and when he turned to look, he saw nothing but her petticoat waving in his face. He could not guess what approached and would be out of line to presume. Fear magnified, Abram was afraid to guess his fate, and most assuredly did not want to assume the worst. He began to crawl away on his hands and knees. His fingertips dug into the asphalt, and he could feel his nails being peeled back. In suspended animation in the creepy mode of locomotion, clamoring faster than he could actually run, he felt he was crawling with the insects. His knees were burning from the friction, and he could feel deep penetrating fragments of granules and tiny rocks from the road embedding into his skin. Heaving breathlessly, gasping with internal moans of desperations erupting from his throat, this shell of a man cried for mercy. He didn't know why, but he kept on repeating, No! 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 Something rather small attached itself to his calf and was trying to crawl up his outer pants leg. Frightfully mortified, he now counted more than one. He swatted at the unknown, hoping to keep his momentum in balance. He touched something with hair. Rats! It's rats! I hate those vermin! A legion of rats, in heated pursuit, bit at his heels, gnawed his ankles, and if it were not for his tight leg pants, they would have gotten to his legs. In a miraculous lift, he found himself running, putting distance between himself and the rats and Molly. Molly did not appear to be following, and the plethora of rats eventually peeled off the road and disappeared into the forest. At least now, he thought. I'm heading back to town. I gotta keep going. I cannot stop. These were painful contretemps, and if the intent was to initiate nonplussed bewilderment and fright, then the plan worked. Exhausted, exacerbated, Abram finally had to stop, expended on the outskirts of Abbeville. He saw the streetlights glowing through the persistent dense fog. The weather conditions had been insidious, leaving Abram drenched in dew. His clothes were heavy and clung to his rail of a frame. He bent over and put his hands on his knees, desperately trying to catch his wind. He heard Molly's voice. Abram, my love, come to me. He nearly jumped out of his skin. Sensationally alarmed, he looked in every direction. He saw the forest behind him and the town straight ahead. Again, Molly called for him. Abram, my love, Molly needs a hug. Go away, woman. Abram's voice sounding despairing with defeated grief. He had come so close. Now this foul woman had found him. He fell backward from the terror onto his haunches and snorted from the intimidation in a maudlin bathos, almost comical way. Severely jarred, even his jaw ached from the blunder. The underlying truth in detail was 
Resistance is futile. There was little to nothing left for him to do but wilt like a flower. Molly appeared directly behind him, between Abram and the town. Seemingly, he failed to determine a way around the gargantuan beast. In his mind, Abram thought she grew larger. Either that, or he was impassively shrinking. He thought she must be burgeoning, because now she towered tall as the trees. Nothing could be more absurd. How is this woman becoming larger? He felt like a tiny ant about to be quashed. He closed his eyes, squeezing them tightly together, in hopes that if he opened them, it would be somewhere else, anywhere else, away from this ocular delusion. Molly had deconstructed him from the time he started his walk out of town until this moment. Everything had been unexpected, dramatic, deliberate in an unspoken epideictic of redundant contradictions. Abram could contrive no repost. He withered defenselessly in the crepuscular gloaming of the night, becoming minuscule to everything in the surroundings. Muller repeated again, I want a hug. Subsequently, Abram thought he had lost his mind, and in his panic attack, it exaggerated what was really taking place. Innocuous, but oh, how wrong could he be? He found himself in a deleterious predicament. Molly iterated, I want a hug. Abram opened his eyes, only to be crushed by the reality. His prayers were unanswered. Molly loomed over him in her malefic, behemoth sense while he wrestled with temporary insanity. If a man were ever devastated and needed his last rites, it was Abram right now. Every ideology Abram lived by, thought he knew or understood, meant very little at this point. He thought, maybe I can bargain with her, maybe come to a compromise. What could he possibly say to make a difference to this simple-minded giant? Instantaneously, he decided to become subservient. Time to beg and plead for his life. Please, don't kill me. Please, don't eat me either. Let's talk about this. I want to live. Abram entreated her. In his nervousness, he unintentionally began a rant of pleonism, which was by no means going to successfully convince or entice Molly. You're such a beautiful woman. Stuttering, Abram continued the compliments. I would say you're gorgeous, uniquely ravishing, and I would add magnificent. After his pathetic hopes of pulchritudinous accolades, Molly shouted in a polyphonic voice. Disagreeable and frightening, this infernal illusion was more than an act of imagination. With the most abominable distinction, she announced in her most cretinous articulation yet, Enough! I want a hug! With an enormous right hand, she scooped Abram up effortlessly, no more than a straw man for her. Kissing himself would be an understatement. The fear impaled him. Molly brought him closer to her. He found no reason to fight or to struggle. Without a doubt, her strength surpassed anything Abram had imagined. He braced himself for whatever would come later. In this weary monotony, he cursed the day of his birth. In this unprecedented here and now, he conceded to his finality. 
He tried to extemporize a prayer of repentance and expected to hear the angels of heaven sing. He was not a godly man, but his reconsideration came unexpectedly. Through whispering lips of great rapidity, and with much emphasis on his own personal deliverance. Quivering, shivering, trembling, and shuddering, he waited to hear the voice of the heavens welcome him through the pearly gates and onto the streets of gold. But he heard no voices, not a single word at all. Cheek to cheek with Molly now, no wiggle room existed. Her hoarse, rawhide-like face scratched him terribly. Then came the scream from hell. It came forth from her expansive lungs, the thick corporate agony of thousands of lamented souls. The wail, mixed with gnashing of teeth and weeping without sympathy, bowed the tops of the trees practically to a snapping point. A malaise of metaphysical, excruciating, ear-splitting sound came bellowing up from unknown regions within her, diminishing all probability of surviving the exclamatory assault of profane, laconic expression. The ear-piercing roar caused Abram a great deal of pain. He perceived his head swelling. His brain seemed to be detached inside his skull in a dizzy, revolting, mad tumble, an elliptical spin on a collision course with the unfathomable unknown. Molly squeezed the last breath from Abram's lungs. She and he exclusively shared the exact concentric circle. Abram felt he was being somehow absorbed into this sphere beneath the layers of self and ego, rotating in a ring of divining fire. In the equator of his thoughts, contracting and expanding, about to explode under the spell of asphyxiation, Abram strived to remain awake. He could not fight it because there was nothing tangible to war against as he slipped into discomforted unconsciousness, he succumbed to incomprehensibility. He imagined himself floating on a fluffy cloud in a blue sky, but the numbing bliss of oxygen deprivation smothered his non-responsive body until it lowered down, resting unperturbed on the pavement. Abram awoke groggy, disoriented, in a state of stupefaction, somehow escaping this phenomenon. He didn't know how. Breathed a sigh of relief at the improbability of life. Daylight, with the sun gloriously on the cusp of rising over the horizon, greeted his tired eyes. He had a bitter taste in his mouth. His eyes came into focus. No sign of Molly. Abram thanked God. The town appeared much closer than before. He realized Molly must have dropped him here. Flora whiff cut his nose. For the most part, he was unharmed. He had no broken bones or missing body parts. Waking from unconsciousness, he heard a dull hum that muted the world before him. His conscious self-realized, consequently, resulting from his previous diminished capacity, something had been subtracted. He seemed not whole, not aligned with himself, impaired. Then Abram realized he was profoundly dead. I hope you enjoyed Huggin' Molly by Dale Thompson, as performed by yours truly. If you've enjoyed what you've heard tonight, I'd like to remind you one last time 
that tonight's featured author can be found by visiting our website. Just visit simplyscarypodcast.com slash Thompson. That's simplyscarypodcast.com slash T-H-O-M-P-S-O-N. Come for the stories, stay for the music. If you do decide to stop by the profile, please leave a kind word. Let them know you heard about them here on this show and that me, Otis Jiry, sent you. It would mean a lot to me. Thanks again for your support of this program and of tonight's featured author. As a reminder, if you do decide to give tonight's talented author's stories a read, please consider leaving him a quality review and a kind word, or a thoughtful public comment and an upvote, and be sure to let him know that you heard about him here on this program and that Otis sent you. It means more to me than you can imagine, and I'm sure that uh, he would be much appreciated as well. Thanks again for your support of this show and of tonight's featured author. Now, before we go, I'd also like to take a moment to thank you personally for joining me for this episode of Scary Stories Told in the Dark. If you enjoyed what you've heard on today's program, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcast. And leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference and would mean a lot to us. If you'd like to hear a premium extended edition of tonight's and all of our other episodes featuring twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the Patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at chillingtalesfordocknights.com where you can purchase season passes for this podcast and our other quality storytelling programs, or become a patron for as little as $5 a month and get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, all of it ad-free. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You can subscribe to me on YouTube as well at the Otis Jiry channel, where you'll find releases of my series, Horror Storytime, dating back to 2014. And you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, too. Just search for Otis Gyrie. Until next week, stay spooky. Get some sleep, if you can. <laughs>
Simply search on YouTube by my name, and you'll find me. And don't forget to subscribe and press the bell notification icon to get my latest releases. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? I take submissions. Email it to me today at otis at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of this show. That's O-T-I-S at simplyscarypodcast.com. If you've enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and other programs and my channel. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for CTFDN as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every Wednesday. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next Wednesday with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs, or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.